fact, it is quite certain that uh, man is born with a certain functioning, a certain way of functioning, a certain pattern of behavior. And uh, that is expressed in the form of archetypal images or archetypal forms. For instance, the way in which a man should behave is given by an archetype. Yes. And therefore, you see, the primitives tell that stories. Uh, a great deal of education goes through storytelling. The world hangs on a thin thread. And that is the psyche of man. Nowadays, we are not threatened by elementary catastrophes. There is no such thing as an H-bomb. That is all man's doing. Yeah. We are the great danger. The psyche is the great danger. What if something goes wrong with the psyche? And so you see, it is demonstrated to us in our days what, what the power of the psyche is of man. How important it is to know something about it, but we know nothing about it. What if something goes wrong with the psyche, Papa Jung? It already has. The collective psyche is broken, shattered, and now we're on the verge of societal collapse. The psyche is the great danger come true. As a recent Gallup poll stated, nearly a third of Americans suffer from depression. An also recent Wall Street Journal article detailed how car accidents, homicides, suicides, and drug overdoses have pushed up the death rates for children and teens in the USA to heights never seen before. Have you seen what it's like out there, Murray? Do you ever actually leave the studio? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. That's just the tip of the madness iceberg. You can see it all around in Western culture. The collective psyche is broken. Put a Satan's fork in us. The Great Reset was never totally economic, but mental in nature. And it's gone all too well in the last three years, wouldn't you agree? At this point, the only chance comes from us who have awakened. We of the broken places who keep taking those inward journeys for our sacred purpose, divine self and wisdom of the ages. We must slouch away from Bethlehem and walk away from Omelas, oh you shining crazy diamonds. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake, and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. Jung said that evil happens when people are not allowed to tell their stories. And thus, we must tap into Hermes and Sophia and teach the brain-dead masses how to storytell, how to be deprogrammed from the Westworld coding of the Archons and their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. We are the last in line, as Dio sang. We are the generation without a king, as the Gnostics were called in ancient times. We are awake and know, as Sioran said, we are living at the bottom of a hell where each second is a miracle. The collective psyche is broken. As Hunter S. Thompson wrote, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? In this eternal now, ready yourself for money-shot gnosis on how to deal with the mental disorders out there, collective and personal. 
and dealing with collective and personal psychosis has been a main part of my mission since 2020. And as we continue to go deep into this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. You know my mother was an atheist. She used to say that there was good news and bad news about hell. The good news is, hell is just the product of a morbid human imagination. The bad news is, whatever humans can imagine, they can usually create. Oh, and where are you? In case you just arrived seeking solace from the insanity out there. The old systems and religions and ideologies no longer working as they've been infected by Wetiko. This is blasphemy! This is madness! Rush! Rush! AM Bytenostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. Psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. I'm swimming. To cure, or at least understand, so much derangement out there right now, we host Matthew Sosha. He will discuss a battery of his very important books that include Deconstructing Narcissism, The Toxic States of America, and The Wheel Trilogy. Get ready to understand collective and individual narcissism, sociopathy, codependency, and psychopathy and how the Gnostic worldview can help restore those who wish to wake up and become the best destined versions of themselves. And I think he made us forget why we're here. Our world has rules and they can't be bent. But nothing in this world follows any rules of logic. This here, it isn't real. It's an illusion, a magic trick, a simulation. From my view, we can't overlook how reductive materialism and scientism have been a huge factor in sodomizing the collective psyche, most recently materializing as new atheism and wokeism. These ideologies have drained humanity of its humanity, of its intrinsic and hermetic ability to co-create with the universe of the great imaginative ideas from beyond that humans once easily grasped. You need to believe in things that aren't true. How else can they become? I've made my case many times before, but this time I'll quote an individual who himself is a secularist, beyond being a brilliant mind. That is Professor Joseph Hoffman, today's leading expert on Marcion, and once a colleague of Robert Price in the Jesus Project. In a recent article, he writes that science is indeed amazing at understanding the world, but it is incomplete without the addition of philosophical, historical, and poetic knowledge. Naturalism limits reality to what we can observe and test, but, in full reality, knowledge also comes from reasoning, language, and abstract systems. Human beings have conscious but limited control over the physical world when only using reason. A wise man once said, Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. Here is part of his article, where Hoffman throws some powerful questions like hand grenades of Gnosis. 
What contribution have the physical sciences made to better understandings of society, social justice, the nature of human personhood, and equality, the nature and role of political systems? What has physical science done to enhance the cultural world of the species? What equivalent to music and art, books and writing systems, mechanisms for the conservation of knowledge and the transmission of learning? It's become appallingly clear that our technology has surpassed our humanity. Religion created the universities, not science. What discussions of meaning and value and critiques of political systems has science produced? What essential questions about human nature and the nature of reality, equivalent to those raised in the philosophy and theology of Duns Scotus, Meister Eckhart, Adorno, Richard Rorty, and Michael Walzer? What contribution did physical science make to the anatomy of the soul, the self, the psyche, the mind? What is the physicist's model of holistic education? What meditations on suffering, love, meaning, absurdity has science produced? Where is Yeats meditating on old age and beauty? Eliot on alienation and modernity? Neruda on the impossibility of love and tranquility? Did science humanize our physical spaces, create our laws, or raise the questions that made life, including economic life, in community possible? No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Was science at the forefront of battles for racial, gender, and sexual equality? Care for the young, the elderly, the vulnerable? Where in science is the appreciation of human form and social space? We know its appreciation of the galaxies, the ideas of goodness, justice, and beauty itself. For that matter, where is science's poetic self-reflection and analysis, and what concretely has it contributed to the philosophy of religion, except hastily constructed polemic and screed? We must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. If the answer of atheoscience is that their role is more limited, their purview more specific and the range of their competence more targeted, no one will quibble. It is only when you ask questions about the merits of these other worlds and their contribution to human knowledge that people have an obligation to call you out for ignorance, arrogance, and sloppy thinking. Whoa. Well said, Professor. Led us to our interview with Matthew. You've heard of the placebo effect. But are you aware of the nocebo effect? in which the human body has a negative physical reaction to a suggested harm. Your mind has the power to create its own physical reality. This will make you vomit. Why do we yawn when we see others yawn? Throughout history, there have been incidents. The dancing plague of 1518. The Tanganyika laughter epidemic. Hindu milk miracle. Some believe they're a response to stress. Psychologists call it a conversion disorder, in that the body converts a mental stress to a set of physical symptoms, in this case, a tick or spasm. And, like any disorder, it can be contagious. This kind of collective behavior is not limited to human beings. What we know is that in certain communities, under specific circumstances, an involuntary physical symptom developed by one person can become viral and spread from person. What was that? 
to person. Person. Until the entire community is infected. And so my question to you is, if the idea of illness can become illness, what else about our reality is actually a disorder? This is the Aeon Bite interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Matthew Sosha to discuss, well, several excellent books and many important issues and questions for 2023. Matt, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is all ours. And with us, we've got the Moondog Vance, Vance Saatchi. How are you doing, Vance? I'm just fine. Looking forward to hearing about politicians tonight <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think we can include all the dysfunctions uh matt so well talks about uh <laughs> just by looking at the tv but uh yeah before we get into that for the audience uh matt has written the book deconstructing narcissism true sympathy for the devil and the toxic states of america and how spirituality can foster a national nervous breakdown as well as the wheel series the trilogy and you go by a different name on that one i do the the uh i use a pseudonym for the fictional series that's mc farmer i was gonna say mc hammer last night as <laughs> i was looking at the word but uh yeah and uh yes the series and matt's book certainly talks and includes a lot on gnosticism and we'll get into that uh, but first, before we get into all this excellent work into, into this treasure chest of becoming sane collectively and individually, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you uh, become interested in these uh, esoteric studies or domains, Matt? That That's a really, uh, that's a really good question. I, I'm not sure where to, to begin with that. Um, I would say that it kind of branched off a socio-cultural interest that I had, uh, mainly a concern. And uh, that's the reason I wrote my first book, in uh, which I published in 2014. But um, I was, uh, at the time, I noticed that um, a lot of companies, a lot of people were losing their jobs. It was over the same thing. A lot of dysfunctional work environments uh, that caused some um, companies and to, to fail and for people to lose their jobs. But um, it was when I was writing The Toxic States of America that I was looking into two topics, uh, that of the Cathars and the Albigensian Crusade, and also the um, the different end time stories affiliated with different religions. Indeed, yeah. There was, uh, as we were talking on email, deconstructing narcissism, uh, it's very timely because, uh, again, uh, in 2014, narcissism really hadn't entered the mainstream, and suddenly it's just it's everywhere, and it's probably overused. Uh, like terms like uh, gaslighting, now everybody uses it as simply lying or not remembering the past, and everybody throws around terms like narcissism. Obviously, terms like psychopath have been uh, thrown around, and even a lot of uh, academics and scientists are like, you know, the they're using it all wrong and it's making things worse however the idea of narcissism i feel is more important than ever and you have that chapter in it Matt, called the zombie effect uh and i i really could relate to it because you're talking about a uh, dysfunctional and toxic work environment and i had all these memories of all my uh all the times that i'd worked at places and again because it was so toxic good ideas good places would just fall apart and uh but the question is and i was talking to uh a few friends who are academics uh aren't all companies uh psychopaths in collective matt i mean can that be avoided uh to answer that directly i would say no um i think they're they're going the way of the dodo but I do think there are some good companies out there. I've, I've worked for some, um, but usually I'm, I'm finding that it has to do with the leadership. If the leadership is egotistical, narcissistic, uh, thinks that they're the, the center of the world, that's when things start to fall apart. 
Um, but I have worked for companies. I, uh, there was one uh, company I worked for. They sold, um, it was actually a designer carpet company and the, uh, the leadership was fantastic. Um, they were involved. They said what they meant, what meant what they said. Uh, they, they were proactive instead of reactive. Um, they, they solicited feedback. Uh, it was more of like a, a collaborative effort. But that sort of leadership is not as prevalent as it used to be. Oh, so you think things have gotten worse since when? I think things really kicked into high gear in, in the 80s uh, with the new civilization where right. we were hyper-focused on the material aspect of life. And I think as time progressed from that point, we never really stepped back as, as a culture and said maybe we're being too materialistic maybe we need to focus on the the spiritual but i think um since the 80s it's just kind of just been this crescendo being hyper focused on the on the physical you know people always being hyper focused on their physical appearance on their money on their status and all this and that unfortunately can't go on forever yeah like a friend was telling me today uh, i think you hit it on the head when you said collaborative because she works for companies to try to basically do uh, psychotherapy, for lack of better words, as a collective. And I said, well, why? And she says, well, because you have hierarchies. And who do you think gets to the top of a hierarchy? Well, the psychopaths, the narcissists, the backstabbers. So if they get to the top, then the entire company becomes you know, psychopathic, narcissistic, and so forth. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, when that when that situation occurs, the best ones are the first to leave. Right. Yeah. But yeah, that is the the case that, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's a work environment, if it's a family, if it's um, a religion or a cult is the same thing. Once you get that kind of personality type, uh, just general misery, the, the fear factor increases. People start making more mistakes. They're more stressed out. They're they're sick more often. They're not showing up. Um, a lot of cliques form, but um, I think in theory the 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 hierarchical model could work if it had that kind of apprenticeship element to it. Like you start at the lower tier, then you work your way up based on your experience and your ability to communicate and get along with other people. I think that's the theory behind it. And if that if it worked like that, where you could work your way up. It could work, but theory is different from practice. Theory is different from reality. I, I say that as a former scientist. Um, but what you just described, I think that's that, that's that's more reality. That that tends to be what happens in the real world is that you get the psychopaths gravitating to that apex and then wreaking havoc because really it's all about them being in power and not the organization. Exactly. And even as a collective, it's hard because uh, many companies, it really is all about destroying the competition, uh, keeping costs by laying off people. I mean, it is kind of vicious, uh, vicious practices. It almost becomes part of every American culture. Like a friend of mine, uh, he works in Mexico, Ivan. He's actually you know, the manager for the Astronosis uh a conference and he was telling you no in mexico if you're gonna get laid off you get what two months notice and even more salary after you leave but here in the united states is like no they expect you you really should give two weeks off but we can fire you anytime so that right there is some sort of part of a psychotic psyche isn't it part of the prevalent culture oh yeah absolutely absolutely it is uh the employer can uh fire at will not suffer any repercussions but if if employee has to leave at will if, if the environment's abusive or toxic or dysfunctional they're 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 shit out of luck yeah well hopefully that's changing because again i think that's part of the uh the mental disorder that's affected the entire country if when your job is such a way even regardless of how well the company is i mean We've seen in Silicon Valley the bloodbath that everybody's gone through, and that was supposed to be the big woo-woo, love-each-other kind of fair, overpaid kind of culture, and that's kind of falling apart. You know, I think that the uh, prevalence of venture capital has started all this because in the old days, 
we had venture capital, but it wasn't dominant. You know, it was more like, you know, friendly bankers. But I've seen it firsthand being a, you know, former Silicon Valley uh, denizen. Uh, when the venture capital came in and started dominating and telling companies what to do and how to do it, that's when uh, a lot of this stuff uh, started happening. Really? This, you're talking about like the the first move, the first wave in the late 90s or later on? No, in the 80s, actually. Oh, in the yeah. 80s, wow. Yeah, it started, it started in the 80s, really. Um, it's, it's, you know, the Sand Hill Road crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I had one of them pitch to me and says, all right, you, you have to hire all Russian programmers. You can't hire any Americans. <laughs> really, I mean, he sat there and said that because I was talking to him about an idea that I was thinking about making a company for. But uh, that, that's the kind of thing that goes on, you know, they, the venture capital uh, and, and um, um, Len Bozak uh, started and with his wife started Cisco Systems, which most people have heard about. And the venture capitalist pushed him right out of his own company. I mean, this is and the, talk about, you know, that, that's why I thought of that when you guys were talking about how the, you know, the people rise to the top. Well, you know, they put their own people in and they pushed the original people out that had a passion for what the company was doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also, it's also there's ancient archetypes that work. Like my brother was telling me as a senior vice president, work for many companies, it's you always when things get bumpy, everybody will pick a scapegoat, a, a sacrifice. It might be the CEO, it might be the this and it's just part of the culture. You get somebody and you you fire them no matter how high. In fact, the higher, the better, right? Like in your case, Vance. It's like we sacrifices and the employees and the customers will be happy. Right. Sympathy for the demiurge. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's break down some of this, uh, Matt. Uh, where do you want to start? I know something important in your book are the 10 basic fear schemas of uh, human that human beings experience. And I have them here. Or would you rather start with maybe defining narcissism? What works better so we can get your ideas across? Well, you know, I think it, it, it's, um, let's, really let's, let's start with the defining narcissism, what that All actually right. is. Sure. Um, I would define a narcissist as somebody who sets out to accomplish uh, one of three objectives. Usually that objective assists with the other two. But the first one is establishing domination and control. The second one is generating narcissistic supply. And the third is uh, exoneration from rules, obligations, mores that apply to other people. Uh, so again, it's control, uh, narcissistic supply, and entitlement or exoneration. Um, I wrote Deconstructing Narcissism as a companion piece to the Toxic States of America because, uh, as we were talking about before, we we're talking about these organizations, these hierarchical organizations which trade fear for power. They they manage to fear and they consolidate uh, power, control, knowledge, finances, and what have you. But what I, what, I really, what, what I wanted to do was to really hone in on that capstone and try to figure out why it wants to satisfy those objectives. And what I came down to, what, what I did um, to really figure out the narcissistic personality type, uh, you know, the person type who gaslights, who manipulates, who is controlling, who is pathologically lying, who is power obsessed, all that, uh, was to find out why that personality type is the way they are. And what I did with deconstructing narcissism, I followed the adage, uh, you marry your parents. So what I, I just imagine myself being uh, raised by a codependent individual, that is somebody who I mean, codependent like narcissism or psych psychopathy, that's a, that's a term that's thrown around a lot and right. ways. So uh, by that personality type, I mean somebody who's um, one of the following, one or more of the following. They're, um, they're weak-willed, they're spread thin, they're depressed, they're addicted. Um, they may, all, all that stuff that goes along with, with codependency um, being empathetic or what have you i just i just imagine myself being raised by that kind of personality type and all the all the characteristics of malignant narcissism popped out um but that that i felt was something that was very important um because the 
I've asked different um, psychological professionals, you know, why does, or what, what causes narcissistic personality disorder? And they, they, they turn on blind. They don't know. Uh, they say it's low self-esteem, but I don't, that just didn't ring true to me. But when I followed that adage and I imagine myself being raised by a codependent person, all those traits emerged. No, that makes sense. Uh, because, uh, most people think that uh, still think a, a narcissist is basically somebody who's stuck up, self-centered, uh, somebody who's going through a superiority complex or is they think that the person named in that Carly Simon song, you're so vain or something like that. But this is actually a, a terrible pathology. And as you said, it's it, it's an addiction. It's a, a person who's a narcissist is in a lot of pain. But what I've heard, Matt, for example, I don't know if you've studied Sam Vankin. He's done a lot of work on narcissism. I have, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't he say it's, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but a narcissist has two personalities. It has a false self that is a warped mirror to the true self and a warped mirror to the outside. And this false self is eating attention that's his addiction you know a codependent people are addicted to other people a narcissist is eating attention that's what feeds it and gives it purpose but sam vankin proposes that perhaps when a mother does not allow a child to grow and explore and smothers this child and wants this child to be sort of the proxy uh parent uh or proxy spouse and give it the attention then that child creates like this false self to satisfy the mother and another self to sort of deal with the world and grow. But then this false self, the narcissistic self becomes the true self and controls. And very tragically, the true self is trapped, you know, inside in this dark void. Uh, is that, what do you think of this? Um, well, first I have listened to, um, Dr. Vaknin's work, and I respect what he has to say. Um, I think uh, a lot of what he says is insightful. Um, I, I, well, yeah, I, I, I think that they do eventually tend to, um, to to buy into their false self rather than the true self. But the um, what I what I found in this book is that narcissism really what causes is two things either being spoiled like overindulged or enabled or being abandoned um and those those two schemas tend to develop that character set and also that those um those objectives they try to satisfy now you mentioned something that was kind of interesting uh with Sam Vaknin having, uh, I'm not sure it was him specifically, but what you kind of described a moment ago was called emotional incest, where a mother right. or a parent will, you know, they'll latch on the child and use that child as a form of emotional support. That can cause that child to feel uh, uncomfortable, irritable, and later on in life, lack uh, suitable empathy for someone else who actually does need it. Yeah, because uh, I don't know how true it is because I'm, I'm writing this bio on Elvis, this sort of... What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Spiritual bi uh, bio, Matt, and uh, psychologists think what Elvis had because Gladys was so overbearing and protective because of the death of his twin and the poverty, but they call it um, lethal enmeshment. And that's again, when the child has suddenly has to wear two hats, he has to be the proxy spouse of the mother because, you know, Elvis's dad spent time in jail and had to work and travel and the, but he also has to be a child, so he becomes this split personality. And people say, "Well, Elvis could have been a narcissist, but he doesn't have the characteristics of a narcissist later on." I mean, we you know we all have like the potential and the the gradients, but he really wasn't a narcissist. He he actually most of his adult life he was trying to be alone. He didn't want attention. He was actually trying to run away and hide from attention. 
Yeah. Uh, so it is different. So that's where I get, you know, I go, well, maybe it's not the childhood thing like Sam Vankin says. Well, I, well, Elvis, I don't think, I don't think he was a narcissist. But what, what you kind of described was like was a mother being controlling rather than spoiling. Well, um, she spoiled him. I mean, he was. She made him the alpha of the house. Well, she couldn't spoil them because they were so poor they could barely eat. So maybe that's why. Yeah, I, uh, I I'm not too familiar with his early childhood, but um. Yeah, I'm just sort of uh, just speculating here because again, it's still pretty. Like you said, it's pretty mysterious how a narcissist becomes a narcissist. I I, I think once you read deconstructing narcissism, it becomes a lot clearer because uh, the narcissist I've I've come across and people who've been diagnosed, not by me, of course, because I'm, I'm not a licensed therapist, but people who have been diagnosed as a as having narcissistic personality disorder uh, have had one parent put them on a pedestal, like, you're king, you're wonderful. I mean, it starts from very early. Mm-hmm. That's the environment they're brought into. Or um, they're frequently neglected. But the the ones who are neglected, they're not going to be, they're not going to have that grandiose kind of narcissism um that's uh that's stereotypical of that disorder um yeah like you write that's the paradox because most people think a narcissist is sort of uh extroverted uh i'm the best give me your attention give me everything but as you write there's the other kind of narcissist right the woe is me i need attention because everything sucks and i want your pity and emotion and all that no, I, I think that's more somebody who's who's depressed, um, <laughs> somebody who's narcissistic. I mean, a narcissistic, they are, they do have that grandiose sense of self. That's a, a, a hallmark trait of narcissism, that they're omniscient, that they're uh, superior. Okay. I mean, that is part of narcissism. Now, what, what a lot of psychologists are, are talking about now is something called covert narcissism. Um, that's kind of a touchy subject. Uh, the term covert narcissism is not in uh the dsm um this was a uh a phrase coined by an author of a book by that by the name covert narcissism and it's it's an excellent book uh what a covert narcissist is they're exactly like a, a, a regular narcissist but these these don't appear gregarious or grandiose they appear innocuous innocuous and and meek but their um the behavior the, the manipulating the gaslighting the control all that is the same and again that's so they get their supply of attention which feeds off of their false self and that's it just becomes like an ouroboros like any other addiction i mean yeah. as, as an ex-addict i know how it is you're just in this wheel of get it you know come down get it come down you don't know anything else it's it's torturous isn't it <laughs> Oh yeah, dealing is is horrible. I mean, I, I refer to them as adult toddlers. Um, <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, but um, but a, a covert narcissist. Yeah, I, I could see them, uh, you know, playing off people's pity or trying to appear innocuous or benevolent, or it, it, by means of uh, appearing downtrodden or hurt or something like that. Right, right. Even though they won't, they don't admit fault and. Like you said, they'll gaslight and deflect. Yeah, in one part of your book, uh, you address this. You say when somebody says, did he love me? You write, well, exactly how much love can you expect an adult version of a toddler to give? How much love do you think they're going to be able to give you or anyone else to get involved with? Like, you're right. It's like expecting the toddler to give you some sort of adult love. Right, and that's because the uh, the the childhood of the narcissist it was all about them taking. The codependent parent was was always giving, and and he never did the the narcissist or the child who would become a narcissist need to empathize with the parent or consider the parent or what the parent was doing. The parent just gives, 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 and, and the narcissist takes, and they expect that to continue out through adulthood. Exactly. And uh, how does, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're saying if you're in a relationship with a narcissist, just run, right? Run, like if you're yeah, in a relationship with a heroin addict. Well, yeah, yes, uh, it, it's, it, it amounts to a psychological scam because the expectation is that the codependent is to love the narcissist and themselves while the narcissist just takes that love and doesn't give back. So it's, it's understandable why people feel so depleted and drained and 
burned mm-hmm. out after dealing with a narcissistic boss or a narcissistic partner or a narcissistic parent or a narcissistic leader of any kind. Because they're, they're taken from you. What's that? Yeah, you're saying it's like vampiric. Exactly. That's what it is. And what are some hints that you might be with a narcissist for the audience who's probably very interested? Um, high personal pronoun density is one. Uh, being one of the parents' favorite, they disclose that. Like I was my mom's favorite. I was <laughs> um, little interest in the other party. Um, a need to be right. A need to be in control. Um, manipulative behaviors, uh, contradicting themselves. Um, uh, uh, Gaslighting, that's, that's, that's an obvious one. Um, uh, if if you want a list of behaviors, um, in Toxic States America, there's a chapter called Toxic Tactics. Uh-huh, yeah. it's, a, it's a catalog of behavioral traits of these individuals. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. But uh, the good news, too, is that uh, somebody, a narcissist who sort of comes through to a moment of uh, revelation or self-reflection, they can get help and get better, can't they? I I don't know. Um, I've, never, <laughs> I never, I've never healed one. I have reduced one to acknowledging his um, abandonment issues. You know, he broke down. It was the first time I actually saw him um, as a real person. I saw his true self. And the next day, he insisted that it never happened, that that talk never happened. Oh, my God. But, I mean, I, I think what the question you just asked, I think, is very important because I, the question I have is, does the field of psychology know how to treat these individuals? Mm-hmm. And the only way you can really treat them is if you know what schemas they're dealing with, which is uh, entitlement and abandonment. Is it one or the other or both? So unless we, you start there, start with their upbringing, I think that's the only way that this can be addressed and healed. I, ho- I hope that it can. I mean, that's the reason I'm here. That's the reason I'm contacting you is uh, to find a way to resolve this because I'm, I'm tired of the drama. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Individual and collective. Uh this as above, so below. Because uh yeah, Matt, I was uh I, I forget it's either a TikTok or YouTube where there's a guy, he says he's a recovering narcissist and he's laying it all on the table, saying all these things. And then I'm thinking, well, could this be like a scam? Because he is getting a supply with likes and questions, and you know, he's got like more than a hundred thousand followers, so he is getting his supply. But he's being very honest and he says that he wants to get better, that he's a self-aware narcissist. And I know it's paradoxical, but at the same time, if he tries to gaslight anybody, his followers will call call him on the, you know, in the comment section. So he I can't even get away with that. Some might continue to enable him. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. He's getting his supply. Right. But he also he's giving very valuable information. So I would hope, too, like you, that there is some sort of cure for this, like any sort of addiction or at least uh, mitigation. Uh, And, uh, yeah, well, keeping in theme of the show, your book uh, then goes into a journey of uh, a wonderful journey, the history of Christianity. Uh, You include Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick. But then, of course, you very wisely deal with the greatest narcissist in the cosmos and that is the demiurgence the demiurge and sophia you would say that's a great tale to tell talk about narcissism and other disorders yeah absolutely because that that tale of um of the demiurge falling from grace due to hubris i mean that that totally substantiates the whole claim that narcissism is due to abandonment and um entitlement mm-hmm. makes sense um I mean, I, I, there, there are different mythos out there, but um, uh, the way I present uh, the, um, the wheel series, what uh, I wrote, includes a, a, a depiction of their falling out. And uh, what happens is uh, Sophia, she's by herself. She wants somebody to love her, like a lot of single mothers. They have babies because they want somebody to love me. And uh, she creates the Demiurge. And 
she gives him this love he takes it eventually she finds herself depleted so she has more angels who are capable of giving and receiving love and this pisses off the demiurge and he he hightails it um but yeah no i thought that was that was um that was i think that was interesting for me to come across the the topic of catharism and Gnosticism while I was writing the Toxic States of America because it kind of gave me that insight that 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 hubris is based in this thought that I'm special mm-hmm. and you're not you're not holding that up. You know what? Um, you know the demiurge. I always thought the demiurge wasn't even aware that anybody else was conscious, that everything was objects, even Sophia. And that for him to rule and manipulate, you know, like chess pieces. Well, that's and what psychopaths and narcissists do. You're all just yeah. there to feed right. off of your objects. They could care less if you're alive or dead. Yeah, there's there's nothing for them to empathize with because no. their mind doesn't contain the concept of minds and souls existing outside their own mind. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that, that dovetails completely. And the reason they don't empathize is that they were not raised to do that. It was always about them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, the Demiurge has uh, that famous line in the Gnostic Gospels from Isaiah, from Yahweh, where he says, there is no God but me. The the ultimate narcissist uh, call or clarion call. And yeah, people forget the Archons and the Demiurge are feeding off of your divine spark, but they also want your worship. It's very important that humanity not look within their own divinity and everybody worship uh, the demiurge yelled about. So that's that's the other narcissistic giveaway, right? Worship me. Well, absolutely. Because well, let's let's go back to the three objectives. One is control. Two is narcissistic supply, and three is um, entitlement. Mm-hmm. So we, we just that's that's narcissistic supply. Um, now, people who need narcissistic supply, they don't love themselves. They need somebody else to do that for them. Because that's what mommy used to do, and that shouldn't stop. I mean, basically, uh, the narcissist is, is just an adult toddler. It's, it's an adult. To- I mean, I, it's, it sounds. I mean, it sounds um, kind of funny, but in a way, it's kind of scary because we have adult toddlers in high-ranking positions. And how how well do you think an adult toddler is going to run an organization? We, 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 we probably we had probably had a narcissist for president. Probably more than one narcissist. Oh, we just had yeah. the obvious one, but. There's probably others we haven't really focused on. <laughs> it's the ones I can see that I'm worried about more. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, we so we, we definitely have narcissists as presidents. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, when I say that about Trump, I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm slamming him or whatever. I'm saying this is a this is a creature that's in pain, isn't it, Matt? Narcissists are addicts, so they're in pain. There's a real self that's like trapped in a basement. And then there's this demiurge self that is just pure chaos and no relaxation and no, really no purpose except for the, you know, getting the supply. I mean, I don't think people understand the more, the more attention, negative, uh, more, you know, uh, you accuse them, the more you try him. It doesn't matter. It just makes Trump stronger, doesn't it? He doesn't care. It's just the, the supply that matters. I, I, well, do I think narcissists are in pain? Yeah, I do. Um, it, I, when the, um, when the, when they're not in control, when they don't have narcissistic supply, or when they don't feel special when it comes to rules. Well, I think like your other book, if you're not, if you're not with your true purpose and true self, and they're very far from it, then you are in pain, isn't it? I mean, if, if those three things aren't in place, then yes, they would be in pain. They would mm-hmm. have to be with true self because all those things, those those three objectives, they if, if they're if they're in place, they're fine. But if they're if they're gone, they're screwed because now they have to actually lo- love themselves instead of assuming else doing it for them. Right, exactly. So yeah, if they don't love themselves, then they're well, they're in a state of self-loathing by nature. I mean, when I was an addict, if I could, if even if I had plenty of hits of cocaine, I knew there was self-loathing, even if I had my supply. So by default, like you said, there's there was no love within me. So but uh yeah, it, it certainly gets complicated. And um what do you 
also the other thing too is that sometimes these things seem to overlap like uh when you were giving a list of the narcissists and you said uh they talk about how they were their mother's favorite i was like oh shit that's me uh, i better look at my, you know but <laughs> but these things overlap addicts narcissists codependents uh it's so it's sometimes it's hard isn't it or even psychopaths i know sam vankin says that psychopaths eat narcissists for dinner because they can they know who they, they can smell them out and destroy them but they all kind of overlap don't they um what, what i think i think it would be greatly beneficial to therapeutic practices to link the schemas to the personality disorder um that is to find out what schemas are behind the personality disorders and the dsm dsm what's um, a schema so the audience might, for those who might not know th those the, the, a schema is also commonly referred to as an issue like, mm -hmm. like oh. you have issue, like not you but <laughs> like so those issues <laughs> that was my mom's favorite damn it matt <laughs> right right um but uh so yeah schema is an issue but um what i think when you ask you know our our psychopathy malignant narcissism codependency are they related um only as far as that there are schemas behind them for instance we'll take um avoidant personality disorder um what i'm saying is an, a person who's avoidant uh was most likely abused as a child um so they have schemas or issues of unlovability and vulnerability um uh, the same would probably apply to borderline personality disorder. Um, but again, for, for narcissistic, I'm saying that it's um, entitlement and or abandonment. Um, now with psychopathy, um, that is also not in the DSM. That was a, that's a term coined by uh, Dr. Robert Hare. I think it was back in the 70s. But what I'm seeing with that, that's actually, that to me, I'm just, this is just my opinion, but I'm seeing that as a dual diagnosis. And it makes sense when you think about that because uh, psychopathy, quote unquote, is divided into two categories. Uh, the first one is uh, personality aggressive narcissism. And the second is socially deviant lifestyle. Uh -huh. Now, when you consider that a codependent parent will raise a narcissist, whereas an abusive parent will raise um somebody who has some kind of avoidant or borderline personality disorder that makes sense with with a psychopath basically what a psychopath is is an individual who was raised in an environment with um that was a, they were they were parented by a very codependent narcissistic couple one, one of their their parents was very codependent and the other one was very um egotistical or narcissistic uh very domineering so that child is at once put up on a pedestal and be loved by one parent who sees their kid as flawed and they're fine and oh i just love my sweet little junior he's just wonderful there's nothing wrong with him his his, his crap don't stink and then you have the other parent who's beating the crap out of that same child so you can see where those two two um factors emerge from the factor one group emerges from the, the codependent parent whereas the factor two emerges from the abusive parent no that makes sense yeah i've got uh i actually wrote down dr Hare's uh summary because it was so chilling and it says an uh, it's a psychopath is an intraspecies predator who use charm manipulation intimidation and violence to control others and to satisfy their own selfish needs lacking in conscience and feeling for others they take what they want and they do as they please violating social norms and expectations without guilt or remorse or as like vance calls them politicians right <laughs> that, that that though i would say and I, I i've heard that quote before i would say it's more due to the factor one set than the factor two um because somebody who's diagnosed as ASPD or um, avoid somebody who might have had an abusive parent, mm -hmm. um, they're most likely not going to be superficially charming. They're most likely not going to be power hungry or scamming. They're probably going to be withdrawn, addicted, uh, low in energy, not very interactive, um, perhaps antisocial. 
Um, but what I, what, the reason I say I think it's so important that psychology focuses on the schemas behind their corresponding personality disorders is that if that's 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 the seed that that's what got into the person's system which grew and it grew this toxic psychology that 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 snowballed over time um but i think that um without doing that there's little help yeah at the same time and let me quote your book because again it was it was a great read uh you write the psychopath exercises the ultimate control over his victim's life as he attempts to destroy his own issues and guilty conscience by killing the scapegoat onto whom he has projected and now personified as his inner hell that's his childhood trauma and so forth i'm assuming to relive relive this feeling of unparalleled power he will need to repeat the process since the recipient of victimization is no longer alive. The goal is the epitome of domination, entitlement, and narcissism. So this is the one taken to the extreme, right? The serial killer we all know about. Yeah, well, I, I think um, the, the, well, narcissists usually leave a wake of destruction, um, whether that's uh, death or not. It could be um, financial loss. It could be some sort of uh, emotional trauma. But um, it may not be a you know litany of murders that they leave behind, but it's uh, devastation in some other form. Yeah, but, but again, it's yeah, it's all because of that trauma. The demiurge not being uh... the end all be all, I guess. What if we can cure the demiurge? <laughs> no, that's been debated. Yeah, certainly it has been debated. Yeah. So. Hey, Anton LaVey sounds like a, a good candidate for narcissism, plus the organization <laughs> itself. <laughs> right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's probably one of the most acute examples of narcissism. Yeah, true. And yeah, and then an interesting, I didn't know that you write borderline personality disorder. It's also referred to as female sociopathy. Right. And women are three times more likely to develop this condition. And it's also, the, again, this is a female friend. She told me that mass hysteria is more likely to happen with women and conversion disorders. And this is not a knock. I think it's either, again, women have been, you might say, uh, traumatized throughout history or their social interactions, they're, they're closer, tied together, so they will they can share these dysfunctions, but um, why do you think person borderline personality disorder is higher with women? Uh, because um, it's usually because they weren't loved. Mm -hmm. um, with, with 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 narcissistic personality disorder, that's um, I think I want to say that like seventy five percent of diagnoses are male, and I think I think I think it's. More, to be honest, uh, you know, I think it's more of um, a gender issue thing because it's more common for, uh, you know, mother to put her son up on a pedestal. I mean, some some fathers put their daughters up on pedestals, and some fathers put their sons up on pedestals. Um, but it, it's most it, it's from what I see, it's more frequent that uh, a mother would you know exalt her son uh, as opposed to a daughter. So um, I think that's probably part of the reason i think it, i i i genuinely think that um the differences between um uh the differences in gender frequency is due to um gender roles yeah i would say so too how about classically good-looking people you know male or female do you think they are more likely to turn into narcissists whereas if they're not so good looking then they turn into borderline personalities like zoolander uh, i'm so good looking I, I, <laughs> if anybody's I, I, seen that movie <laughs> I, I did see that movie it was, it was funny um uh I, I i i don't know i think it 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 depends on the individual i mean if, if um that person could just be naturally good looking or just might might be naturally self-loving and in which case they probably wouldn't and they might even eschew people brown nosing them or uh putting them up on a pedestal um uh, I think in terms of, of an actual narcissist, like a somatic narcissist, um, yeah, there was that 
there's probably that early onset history in their childhood where they were put on pedestal for being good looking and that kind of stock. That's that's definitely potential. Yeah, Hollywood. <laughs> oh God, the entire yeah. town. Yeah. And it's interesting too, Matt. You dedicate this book, uh, deconstructing narcissism, to several people, but you also say, "I would also like to dedicate this book." to the millennial generation has been scapegoated more than any other generation preceding it. Do you believe that? Um, yeah. I'm I agnostic. I, 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 got, I just thought it just jumped out of me. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, 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 I well, actually, no, maybe not. Cause I, I know a lot of people complain about the hippies, um, but I mean, <laughs> still do, <laughs> but that, but that, that was more like a cultural thing, but like as, as, as an entire generation. Yeah. I, I do hear a lot of people, um, like blaming them for a lot of the ills that preexisted their existence um and i think uh in many ways they've been handed a um a bad situation i mean they've been they've been handed a toxic environment oh god yeah yeah um especially after the turn of the century yeah yeah the 21st century has just been this big steaming pile of shit 9-11 iraq war 2008 the pandemic i mean there's no future out there. Hate to tell them. Well, if um, if we keep going in the direction we're going, it's exactly. the, um, a narcissistic culture or organization. Um, in this case, a, a, a country. It always needs something external. It always needs something. It needs to. It needs it. It is it, insatiable. It, it doesn't. There's only so much we can take. Mm-hmm. We don't have an infinite amount of resources or wealth on the planet there is a finite amount and unless we change um our culture that's not going to fare well in the long run no you're very well said in fact your book the toxic the toxic states of america and how spirituality can foster a national nervous breakthrough is is the solution so why don't uh why don't we talk about that and it's interesting to too I don't know if you've noticed, and I just did a intro for the podcast about this, and this is something other cultural thinkers have noticed, but if you see, this is where it starts in a culture, because it's what we're projecting, but a lot of new movies and shows like uh, The Bear, The Beef, some movies, what's showing, Matt, is all of a sudden these very, very angry, dissatisfied and uh just rebellious millennials in their 40s and some people think that this is the time where now the millennials are like oh shit we just got screwed steve jobs ain't gonna save us uh uber's not gonna save us amazon prime's not gonna save us this country's falling apart and now it's time to get really angry do you see that too oh uh that's a really good question um in terms of what, are, what I'm forecasting for the future, I think what's more likely to... Oh, God, I don't even want to... <laughs> I, 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 you know, George Orwell, he said, um, he has this quote, if you want an idea of the future, imagine a boot, boot stomping on a human face forever. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think might happen is that they might not even have the chance to be to honor their anger or their dissatisfaction. I think some are just going to go along with the program, go along to get along. But the ones you're talking about, um, if the, if things keep progressing, we're going to see more calcified, toxic global culture. That's, that's what I see happening. Um, so do I, do I think the millennials are going to be angry? They, they might. Yeah. Or even just self-aware, realizing that you know the dice was loaded, uh, the game is rigged. Uh, oh, you know, I, all I, the, and it's time we do something. Either eat, I mean, not saying just get out and be angry, but maybe just disattach from this society or I, something I like that. I, I I see, and I've met a lot of millennials who are um, who who are awake. I mean, they they Good. they know what's going on. They know, and to me, they're they're extremely precocious that they're able to. Um, see the writing on the wall as early as they do or, or as early as they have. But, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of them uh, speak out. They, they know what's going on. For the audience, uh, we barely scratched the surface with Matt's work and his books. What I love about his books is that don't expect like this overly scientific, psychological, 
he gives you it's it's written very plainly very understandable he has bullet points and graphs about the movement and the schemas and he's got inspirational quotes uh stories he talks about myths and christianity and so forth so you get the entire shebang and it's uh, approachable useful and uh very and yeah and engaging so check out his books matt do you have a web presence at all i can find it uh, for the audiences to find more about you uh they can go to mattsocia.info mm, okay. uh, I there there is on a Facebook page for the wheel series but uh for social media that's all I have I'm not a fan of social media mm-hmm. um but that that's uh how they can learn more about me all right well we'll have this on the show notes and uh I'll also have the links to the books too but you heard it here but yes we are at the end Vance thanks for keeping us company oh no problem loved it keep up the good work Matthew Thanks, Vance. It was great to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Great Same work. Uh, your books are so timely. I don't care if they came out in 2004. They're, they are timely to today like never before. So check it out. And Matt, yeah, appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your time and these very necessary ideas for hopefully a better world. Oh, thank you, Miguel. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me on your show. Pleasure was all ours. And there you have it. Trying to get sane in the membrane with our interview with Matthew. In our second part, we'll explore more solutions to understand and navigate those cluster three disorders, including how to avoid and expose clinical narcissists. But do we all have narcissistic tendencies? Find out. Matt will speculate whether the elite are all psychotic and lack empathy. We'll talk more about Sophia and the Demiurge. Matt will also discuss his fiction works and how they relate to his overall ideas, including insights into the Cathars and other Gnostic groups, and much more. So please become a member for the full therapy. It's only $6.99 for AB Prime or $4.99 a month at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel for AB Prime members and high-level patrons. If you find value in this content, please help grow this Red Pill cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations on Stripe or the U.S. Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip, or you can tip on any YouTube show. There's always the merch store and a wish list. And consider the Finding Hermes program, where we have exclusive meetings and presentations every month, with many past guests hanging out there for high-octane gnosis. I also have a one-on-one tier if you want to talk to me every month about Gnosticism or other heresies. If you need help with any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.